Calvary Chapel, Mason City. First Peter chapter three, verses one through seven today. A newlywed couple had the most beautiful wedding in Central Park, New York City. As the ceremony concludes, they both climb into a two-person horse-drawn carriage. I think I have a picture of it. The new groom takes the reins as his beaming bride sits close to him, putting her head on his shoulder, wrapping her arms around his midsection. He gently tugs the reins and the horse pulls out onto the path into a nice slow trot. It's a beautiful day for a carriage ride. These newlyweds are so enamored with one another, gazing at one another, things are off to a good start. Well, the husband, distracted by the radiant beauty of his new bride, isn't paying too much attention to driving. The carriage swerves at the sound of a car peeling out. The wife panics, grabs the reins. The beautiful beginning of their wedding day quickly descends into conflict. They both wrestle to be in control of the reins, yanking and pulling. The horse gets totally freaked out and runs off course down a busy city street, cars swerving, honking. The carriage makes a very sharp turn and the young couple are thrown to the ground. Although the broken bones and bruises they suffered were painful, the pain of the fight they both had was worse. People put a lot into their wedding day, but wise people put a lot into their marriage. Marriage is the most difficult, best, most rewarding, challenging thing that anybody could ever engage in. One thing that makes it even more difficult is the fact that there is so much advice going around about it. Maybe some unqualified at that. There are so many marriage books on the market that have the 10 laws to a successful Christian marriage. Some could be helpful. What I've found is most of them are very idealistic and even discourage couples because, you know, somebody writes a book. I've figured out how to do it. We figured out how to do it. Now everybody has to do it like we do it. It's pretty interesting with all the, you know, hundreds upon probably thousands of books about marriage. It's interesting that the Bible only has a few things to say about it. I think there's wisdom in that. In today's passage, tucked in this letter about believers as strangers in this pagan land, Peter starts to talk about marriage. And I'll tell you, today in 2023, what he's about to say is definitely strange compared to the world's ideas today, and maybe even offensive uh, to some. In this message, we're going to see what Peter has to say uh, to husbands and wives. Now, the context that we're in, you remember last time, Peter has been talking about, um, as Christians in this strange pagan land, as sojourners and pilgrims, what we ought to do is be submissive. And because we trust in Christ, because we trust in his position and his privilege that he's given us and, and the provision and because we trust in our salvation and our hope in him, we can be submissive even to a pagan government. That's what he says. And then he says we should be submissive in employer-employee situations. We can even be submissive at our jobs. And now this time he talks about, uh, he starts out talking about gals being submissive even in a marriage where the husband's a pagan. And then the message will conclude with one verse, kind of a word to the husbands. That's where we're going today. Please pick it up at First uh, Peter chapter 3, verses 1 
And two, we're going to look at this first part here where he tells wives to be submissive. Look at wives, likewise be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Let's pray before we go further. Father, thank you for your word. And we come to it today recognizing what it is, the very words of God. And Lord, it's our choice of our will to submit and to surrender to it. And so we ask, teach us and instruct us and encourage us in Jesus' wonderful name, amen. Likewise, as a connecting word, as I mentioned, the two sections before, we're dealing with submission to a pagan government, to a pagan employer. Now it is a wife's submission even to a pagan husband. He says, be submissive. Notice that there, it's a military term. It means to simply arrange oneself under the authority of another. In other words, it's just leading to um, following another's lead in obedience, being submissive to them, being submissive to their leadership. Submission in the Bible never has anything to do with worth or intelligence or one being better than another. That's not the idea of biblical submission. Submission can be a very touchy word. Um, there have been at least one or two husbands that have lorded this over their wives and said, you need to submit to me. Now, let me make an aside real quick. If a husband has to remind his wife over and over that he's the husband and she should submit, most likely the husband is not loving his wife correctly. Right? So if you're lording this over your wife and saying, you need to submit to me, you know, if you were being the leader, people would recognize it. Now, God has designed all things in creation with an authority structure. In fact, 1 Corinthians eleven three 3 says this, the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. There's even authority structure in a sense within the Trinity. Uh, the Bible says that Jesus only does the things that he sees the Father doing. He's submitted to the will of the Father. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane before Jesus was crucified, he ended his prayers every time with what? Not thy will be done, or my will be done, but thy will be done. Jesus was submissive to the will of the Father. Remember, he says, if there's another way than the cross, I, you know, let me out of it. He says, well, there's not, so uh, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will. He's submitted. So when you talk about biblical submission, if you think it has to do with inferiority, Christ is not inferior to the Father. Um, it's just authority structure. Things work in the universe because God has established an, an authority uh, structure. Now, there are two places in the Bible that God has commanded male leadership. One is in the church, and the second is in the home. And so, nowhere else. Um, when it says here that wives are uh, to be submitted to their own husbands, notice that there. That's, that's a careful detail because it's saying women are not supposed to be subject to men in general. It's saying, wives, be submitted to your own husband. Right? It's not women being subject to men. Uh, in general. Again, there's two places God's commanded male leadership, and that's the pastor of the church, the leader of the church, and in the home. Now, there are always limits to submission, and this applies to marriage as, as much as it applies anywhere else. There's always, there are always limits to submission. When, so the Bible never, you know, commands absolute submission to any authority. If an authority person in the government or, or a husband or anything like this, ha, com, you know, is trying to get their wife to submit to uh, something illegal, uh, something immoral, something abusive, you're certainly not to submit to that. Aaron and I have had the privilege of doing uh, a little bit of marriage counseling with people, and that's an experience. 
I'll tell you. Uh, they come in sometimes and they sit so far from each other, they won't even look at each other. And then by the time, you know, you get Jesus involved a few weeks down the road, they're hugging and kissing. You're like, oh, that's cute. Doesn't always happen that way. One time I think about particularly the wife found out that the husband was trying to scam the government and, you know, fill out all this bogus like PPE loan requests and stuff during COVID and uh, trying to say that he, you know, had a company and he didn't really have a company and he's trying to say he's got all these employees and wants her to, you know, sign off on it. It's like, should I submit to that? He's my husband. <laughs> no, she didn't. And he went to prison shortly after and I believe he's still there. Look at what it says next. He says that even if some do not obey the word. So notice this detail. He's talking about, he's saying, wives, if you are submissive to your husband as God wants you to be, um, even those that don't obey the word. So he's talking about unbelievers here. Um, in Peter's day, there would be a lot of questions, you know, with people getting saved, wives getting saved. Okay, I'm saved. My husband isn't saved. What do I do? Do I still listen to him? I mean, he's, he makes decisions. Do I follow his decisions? Do I divorce him? Uh, do I stop, you know, uh, you know, hanging out with him? I mean, it's like, what do I do? And so Peter says, no, what you do is you be submissive to him. You respect the fact that God has him as the husband and, and you're the wife and you be respectful to this position. We're not talking about abuse, abuse illegal activity, none of that stuff. Not, not talking like that. But wives, your husband is a, is, is a non-believer. You still need to love and respect him and submit to him in a way that God would have you do that. Um, why? Look at it, it goes on there. That even if some do not obey the word, without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. So in other words, what he's saying is, okay, you got saved. You really want your husband to get saved. But every morning when he bites into his sandwich after you make his lunch for him and he goes to work and he bites in and pulls out a Billy Graham tract, <laughs> you know, he's like, you can win him without a word. Peter doesn't say, don't be concerned about your husband. He's a pagan. Leave him alone. He says, no, win him with submissive Christ-like character. Stop preaching at him. Stop lecturing him. That's not going to work. Serve him. As, as, you know, God has called you to do. And that will win him. Now, this isn't a blanket promise. I mean, this isn't a guarantee 100% of the time. He's just saying, this is the method. Saved wife for your unsaved husband. This is the method. Respect him as your husband. Submit to him. Serve him. Look at there, it goes on. He says, when they, talking about the husbands, observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. So the unbelieving husbands, they'll be one when they see chaste conduct. What does chaste conduct mean? It just essentially means pure. You know, it's like when they see that you're conducting your, and, you know, and it says they're accompanied by fear, essentially when, when, when a husband can observe your conduct and look at you and go, wow, this gal is living under the authority of the Lord. She's, she's, she has the fear of the Lord in her life and therefore she's being pure and she's really changed and she's, she's a different person now. And he, and he sees this conduct and he goes, wow. Um, and, and that starts to work on his conscience because he goes, what's motivating this? And then he starts to think about it and he goes, she fears the Lord. This is a God-fearing woman that's in my house. What happened to my old wife? She used to be a sailor. <laughs> you know, like she F-bombs every now, you know, all the time. And, you know, now she's all of a sudden this pure, I'm intimidated to be around her anymore. It's like, who brought the, you know, salt into this infected wound? And, you know, when you start to preach at them and nag at them and stuff like that, you know, like, not that anybody ever nags at anybody, you know. 
But that almost just takes the conviction off of them. Because the husband sits and says, you know what, I've endured abuse all day. Check, I can sit and check out now. You know, I endured my lecture for the day, so now I'm going to retire to my chair and go play, you know, and go watch TV all night and just check out because I endured my lecture for the day. But when you take that out of there and you let the Holy Spirit start working on them and they observe your conduct and they go, this is intimidating, man. This person is pure. They start to think about their own life then. They start to realize that as pagans, they are under the condemnation of the Lord. They start to realize something better change here, and it's me. <laughs> now, I have personally witnessed wives apply this very passage. I can think of some gals that I know for sure that this, I, I can picture them in my mind, that this got into them, and they started living like this, and their husbands got saved. I've seen it happen. So be very encouraged today. It's okay. You're not being a bad Christian by, by stopping the lecturing and by, and by stopping, you know, Alistair Begg devotional emails being sent to all their email addresses and texting them and, and, you know, and adding them to the prayer chain of the church and stuff when they don't want to be on there. You're, you're okay, you know, by, by letting that go according to scripture, you know. Just work on yourself as a character, you know, your character and, and, and model that Christ-likeness to him. So first of all, be submissive, verses three and four. He says, do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. So background at this time, women were very, uh, they just went to town on braiding their hair. Some of these were, you know, these huge braided uh, sort of, I don't even know how to describe them. I was trying to find some good pictures. I found a small one that wasn't going to look good on that screen, but... So they would strive to keep up with the latest, the most expensive fashions in this day. The gaudy adornments of women of wealth uh, were meant to draw attention to themselves. It was a show of like, you know, aristocracy and so on. And so the ancients, though, at this time, they did consider a meek and quiet spirit as a prime virtue for women. Um, but uh, this was just not what the wealthy did. And so since the wealthy were, you know, the wealthy gals were always trying to, you know, elaborate hair and trying to show and draw attention to themselves, the people, you know, that weren't of those sort of means, they would still copy them. You say, that's kind of like today when people buy these knockoff like coach bags and it's like they, they want to try to like afford things that they can't afford and they try to, I got bling, dude. It's like, that was made in China, homie. You know, like everybody can see that, you know, like you're fooling yourself, you know. And so essentially what he's saying right here, though, is don't let your adornment be merely outward. Is don't be concerned about this stuff. But notice the word merely right there. Do you see that? He deals with this subject of adornment, this uh, makeup, hairstyles, clothing. And he says, don't merely let your adornment be outward. Now, some have misinterpreted this verse to say that a woman should make herself just as plain and unkept and everything as possible. And that's not at all what Peter's saying. It's a good thing to be beautiful. It's a good thing. If that's, you know, if it's a good thing. These, these are, it's fine to feel beautiful by using makeup, by hairstyles and by wearing nice clothing, all this stuff within, you know, modesty and, and you know, those things are a great thing and, and they don't make you worldly, okay? What makes you worldly is when your adornment is merely outward, only outward. I'm sure that we've all met at least one person, one female, at least in our lives, where you can look at them and say they obviously spend a lot of time on the external, 
And then you talk to them and you go, they should probably spend some more time on the internal. Because you look great, but you're evil. <laughs> you know? And that's our culture today, though, right? Is, is putting way too much esteem on what's going on in the external. We can go on a rant about that. It works well in consumerism culture. It's like, who cares about your character? Just keep buying stuff from me, you know? Just be a consumer. Chasing after something you'll never quite get right. So he says, gals, be encouraged. You can escape all that. Just don't be concerned merely with... He's not saying don't take care of yourself, leave yourself unkept. That's, that's not the idea. But he's saying, rather, verse 4, let this be in the hidden person of the heart, your inner woman, that's what's important. And he says, with incorruptible beauty. That's a beautiful thing right there, gals, if you're a Bible underliner, incorruptible beauty. Because the thing about inner beauty is it doesn't fade away every year that goes by. It doesn't deteriorate, you know. I'm sure we've all met at least one person that when they started to show the first wrinkles, like, life just fell apart for them, you know what I mean? Uh, you know, and so this is good news. The inner beauty, it does doesn't go away. It doesn't diminish. In fact, the Bible says that even though the external is diminishing, being corrupted day by day, it's like the inner is being renewed day by day and strengthened. And that's a beautiful thing, right? So, man, if gals could get a hold of this, I think the whole, there's like a whole line at the grocery store that would go out of business, right? A whole aisle of junk, right? Don't need that stuff. That's what he says, gals. Be concerned about what's going on on the inside. And then he says right here, um, of a gentle and quiet spirit. So the word gentle, remember in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, blessed are the meek? That's what this word means. Uh, gentle means meek. It's not weak. Um, a good way to describe it is it's power under control. Uh, a meek person, a gentle person, this is a mild disposition. Someone that is intentionally easy to get along with. Now that again flies right in the face of culture today. This meek and quiet spirit, right? This quiet means tranquil or mellow. Yeah, when I was, <laughs> mellow yellow. When I was putting this sermon together, I kept having that song stuck in my head. They call me mellow yellow. I don't know what that song's about. It's probably something weird. It's from the hippie days. I don't know. Uh, some of you were probably, that was your, maybe your favorite song. I don't know. Sorry if it was. But it kept going through my mind. But gentle and quiet, you know, just easy, intentionally easy to get along with, go with the flow. I'm not always trying to be, you know, look at me, you know, I'm so, meh. I don't know how you, that's not in my notes. How did you write that? Bleh. Look at me, I'm an influencer. It's the opposite of that. Yes, it's the opposite. You're thinking Lady Gaga. Yeah, it's the opposite of that kind of stuff. It's the opposite of what girls think is cool today. It's not walking around always trying to get your opinion heard and always trying to be sarcastic and the center of the attention and rough and being gruff. It's God. And look what it says there at the end of this. You know, I, let me encourage you. If you're, if you're tripped up with role models and culture, especially you young people, and you're thinking that that's what's cool is to be like these people that are totally the opposite of this, listen to what it says there. It says, this is very precious in the sight of God. So kind of like what Rebecca just said about heaven and hell, you can make the choice with your life. You can say, I'm going to develop the sort of character as a young lady to be what is precious in the sight of God, or I'm going to try to fit in with this pagan world that esteems things that are anything but godly. So you can choose. 
Be submissive, be concerned with inner beauty, be reliant on God, verses five through six. For in this matter, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. So he goes back now to an Old Testament example uh, to prove you know, this point of biblical submission. And it's interesting when he says in former times, what Peter is saying to his audience, to his readers, is he's saying, gals, I'm not calling you to do anything that's new. He's saying God's standards has, they just have always been the same. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The standard's always the same. And so he says, I'm just, I'm calling you to be a classic woman. I'm calling you to be what God has designed, you know, women to be in general. I mean, there's variations of personalities within this, of course, but these are some general principles. He says, I'm going to take you back to Old Testament times, and we're going to look at this gal named Sarah. Notice where it says holy women. He's not talking about super saints. He's just talking about people that trusted in God uh, back in that day. And notice that there, this is very important, that they trusted in God. This is the key to biblical submission, okay? Some, some women are very, um, they look at their husband and they say, and, and rightfully so, this is, this is true. Some of them look at their husband and they say, I'm smarter than this guy. I make better decisions than this guy. I'm more spiritual than this guy. I have more ability than this guy. I can cook better than this guy. I can clean better. I can do everything better than this guy. And you're telling me I need to submit to him? Yeah, exactly. How can you do that? Notice those words there. These women who trusted in God. When you trust that God's, you know, got your back and, and that he's your provider and he's your strength and he's, uh, you know, he is ultimately in control of your husband as well too. When, when you trust God in his sovereignty, that means you can say, look, God, I'm going to be obedient to you and I'm going to trust you for the results because you haven't called me to do all the things he's called to do. You've called me to be his helper. You've called me to bring the best out of him and to support him. You haven't called me to be accountable for the decisions he makes. And so, but when you trust God, when you, when you understand God for who he is and, and you really put your heart into him, that's the only way you can do this in some cases, you know? So a gal will say, look, I'm being respectful to my husband, but I'm ultimately trusting in God. And so that's, that's really important there. If you have a hard time, let me just say, just be direct, you know? Uh, if you have a hard time trusting your husband and being submissive to him and, and allowing him to be the leader or, or encouraging him to be the leader, just why don't you circle those words and, and refer back to them and ask yourself, are you trusting God? It says that they adorned themselves also being submissive to their husbands. So here he's using the word adorned for the inner qualities. He's saying these gals, he's using Sarah as an example, she adorned herself in this biblical submission. You know, this was, her inner character was adorned with this. And he uses the example of Sarah. Now, Sarah and Abraham are from the book of Genesis, right? And you remember their names originally? Who remembers them? Trivia, Bible trivia. Sarai and Abram, right? So I'll switch and mix them up uh, in this next section here, but yeah, a little Bible trivia. They... Uh, were married for a really long time, and you guys know some of the, the story. And when it says that Sarah, you know, uh, submitted to him and called him Lord. Now, I keep trying to get Aaron to call me Lord. This just doesn't work, you know. Lord Adam, you know, it sounds got a good ring to it, you know. I'm just joking. This is not uh, a command to call your husband Lord, you know. Uh, actually, Aaron, in her funny self, do, she does this at times, and I'm like, oh, geez, stop it, you know. And like, Lord Adam, like, oh, geez, come on. I'll start blushing like, no, don't, don't. 
maybe again. <laughs> but no more after that, you know. So one more time. Can you do that around other people? <laughs> oh my gosh. It's not a command to call him Lord, but what it is saying here is she honored her husband in words and deeds. She not only did, you know, what he said and respected him and, and treated him as the leader, she also built him up with her words. She also, you know, it, it wasn't just deeds, it was words and deeds. It was honor and obedience to him. Now, I bring that up because it is possible to obey what somebody says but not honor them, isn't it? You know? I mean, everybody's been like that at a job before, right? Oh, the stupid boss called me to come in here. Oh, yeah, I'll do it. You know, get the paycheck. And then the boss comes in the room. Oh, yep, yes, sir. Well, you're obeying your boss, but you're not honoring them like that. Now, for those of you who know your Bible, you say, oh, it's easy for her to submit to him. He was this mighty man of God. Really? You guys know Abraham? Let me tell you a little bit about Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 5, when Abram and Sarai are in their 70s, Abram comes, takes his wife, this guy named Lot, his cousin, and decides that they are going to move into a strange pagan place and go on a pilgrimage because God gave him a vision. Okay. Genesis 12, verses 10 through 20, as they're in this strange place, Abram leads his wife and family into Egypt... And he's afraid of the leader there, so uh, he says, you know, why don't you pretend that you're my sister, because you're so beautiful, uh, you know, they're going to kill me, so why don't you pretend that you're my sister? And, and she says, okay, and she does it, and, you know, ends up, Pharaoh, you know, temporarily takes her as his wife. Oh, wow. Genesis 13, 1 through 11, Sarai followed Abram's lead when he decided to give his cousin Lot the better of the land. Do you remember that? turmoil between Lot and Abraham. Abraham says, Lot, go ahead and you take this land. It's the way better land. You know, he botches the real estate deal by worldly turn. You know what I mean? Oh, but Sarah submitted to him. Now, uh, Genesis 20 verses 1 through 18, uh, the whole pretend you're my sister thing, it comes back again when they go into Gerar and Abimelech takes her into his harem. Praise God, he intervenes and says, don't do anything to this gal. I mean, it's not his sister, it's his wife. Abimelech comes back, a pagan, and acts more godly than the godly man and says, what did you do this to us for? Take your wife back. Get out of here. Take a whole bunch of stuff with you, too. Blesses him. <laughs> okay, Genesis 22, 1 through 19, Abraham takes their only son, Isaac, and says, I'm off. What are you doing this morning, Abraham? Where are you taking Isaac? Well, the Lord's called me to sacrifice him. What? You got to trust me on this one. You ever thought about things through Sarah's perspective when you read this Bible verse? How could she do it? Those words you circled. She trusted God. Here's a good point, okay? True biblical submission does not only mean you submit when you like what your husband's doing. When you submit only when you like what your husband's doing, that's not submission at all. You're actually submitting to yourself. You're not submitting to your husband. You are your own God when you're doing that. You're the judge, you're the jury, and you're saying, oh, I like this action, I'll submit to that one. Don't like this action, won't submit to that one. You're not submissive at all at that. You're submitting to yourself and to your own ideas and your own intellect as advanced as it might be. 
but you're being submissive to yourself and not to your husband. So, and this applies in a church. This applies anywhere. This applies, you know, remember you called us last week to submit to a government and employment. Submission is, is really godly submission kicks in when people don't disagree, people don't agree. That's when it really shows up was when people don't agree. Anybody can follow along when things are going their way. Here's a rhetorical question before I move on to this final point. Wives, are you submitted to your husband in such a way that you're making his life better or are you draining him and your marriage because of your lack of submission? With no one wrangling the reins, both spouses know and do their part, the carriage goes on beautifully. So seriously give this some thought. Gals, if you're dating somebody and, you know, they may be cute, but can you submit to them? Are you sure you can? You should observe that a long time before you get physical or get too close. Watch what they do. Verse seven, husbands and their wives. He gives three imperatives in this one little verse here. It's loaded. So I, I think the reason he started off with wives is clearly because wives need more help. <laughs> Just kidding. Oh, my gosh. Not at all. Not at all. I'm totally joking. I think he started out with... <laughs> totally joking. Totally joking about that. Totally joking. So it's, it's the other way around. I know. I have a godly wife. I'm a husband. I... I get it. I was totally joking. I think, he, I think the reason he did is because he was on the subject of submission. You know, last two weeks, or, you know, last section was about submission to the government, submission to the employers, then submission in marriage. And now he goes into the husbands and he says, husbands, likewise dwell with them. Now, many philosophers, moralists, Jewish teachers in this day complained about the moral and intellectual weaknesses of women. This is how the culture was in, in this day. A lot of it had to do with uh, this guy named Aristotle. Um, if you've heard of him before, he was a very influential philosopher, and he argued that women by nature were inferior to men in every way except sexually. And so this guy was clearly wrong, right? But that was what was going on in this day and age. And so I, I bring that out to say, uh, what Peter says here is just radical. I mean, this is so radical. Ladies, Christianity was the first thing that came along that takes women and puts them as equals to men. First thing ever. So you say, I wonder where I've got all these privileges today, and, you know, and it's not like this Aristotelian philosophy and, and things like that. It's because Jesus said that there's no male or female, Greek, Jew, or anything. He says, all are one in Christ. And that was radical teaching in this day. You have to know that, right? That's just kind of an aside, but that's the culture at the time. And so what he says is, husbands, likewise, dwell with them. Now, this means more than living under the same roof, okay? This means more than surviving together. This means more than enduring. Dwelling, by the way, sadly, there are a lot of marriages like that, where they just are kind of like roommates. Now, to dwell means to live in a close relationship physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. It means to be fully engaged, to be settled down into this relationship with your wife. It doesn't mean just live in the same roof with them. 
means husbands, dwell with them. Be engaged in every, everything. Be present with them. It is very easy for some men to simply decline into a life of working and paying bills, perhaps sleeping in the same bed, yet neglecting sharing time, conversation, dates, fun, feelings, and so on. So Peter would tell these husbands, men, don't do that. Dwell with your wife. You remember Ephesians 5.28 says, husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. And that in that same section, husbands are to love their wives as Christ loves the church. Right? So to be obedient to this command, a godly husband must pursue, work at, strive for, give himself to the oneness that God has ordained for his marriage. The goal of Christian marriage is oneness. It's to truly understand and live in the dynamic of one flesh and what that means together, to be one. The cultural idea of it's 50-50 is not a biblical idea. The only, biblical is, is there's just 100%. There's one flesh. You both have become one flesh. This whole 50-50 thing, it's a cultural invention. The Bible says you two become one flesh. It's deeper than any other thing out there. And uh, that's the goal of marriage is oneness. To be obedient again, godly husbands must pursue this. Next thing that he says there, next imperative is, he said, notice that, he says, with understanding. So secondly, a godly husband must dwell with his wife with understanding. This means essentially, uh, you know, literally would read in the Greek, according to knowledge. This goes far beyond the superficial stuff like knowing her birthday, her anniversary, her allergies, her favorite colors. It goes far beyond that. This means to know how she thinks, what her greatest aspirations in life are, what her fears are, her regrets if she has any, what she daydreams about, what she wants to be as a person, what she needs as a person. This is a deep appreciation and understanding of your wife. This husband knows her unspoken worries, the things she's concerned about. He knows how she ticks. One of the books that I read early on in marriage introduced me to this idea of being a student of my wife. That was the, the comment, that, the title that he gave. And based on this verse, he says, husbands, you need to be a student of your wife. And one of the ways that this played out in his life, this author, um, he's got a folder on his computer that's just got tons of information on his wife. He's like, well, that sounds kind of creepy. Well, no, it's your wife. And, you know, he gave some practical examples of it. He said, you know, you're out at the mall and, and you notice she, she likes this particular sweater. A guy snapped a picture of it and he emails it to himself and it goes into that folder, you know, and they're on a vacation somewhere and he notices that she pays attention to something and, and he sees that he just pays attention. This thing made her cry. This, you know, this is something I heard her talk about some memory with her mom and so, oh, maybe I could try to recreate that someday. You know what I mean? I got a few of those in my, in my list, you know, that, uh, you know, my wife has told me about from her childhood and things like that. And, and that's what he, he really got forth in this book was to be a, be a student of your wife. You know, this is, this is a full-time, you know, blessing. God has put this woman in front of you to study and to learn. And it's so easy. No, it's not. <laughs> I make you, you're like, women are a mystery to me. I get it. That's why you got you to put yourself, you got to try, you know. You got to apply yourself. Be a student of your wife. Dwell with her according to knowledge. Those two things go together well because you could have a bunch of knowledge about your wife, but yet to dwell with them according to that knowledge. You're taking the things you know about your wife and how she works and her personality and her cares and her feelings and her likes, and you're organizing and you're working life in such a way that will blossom her and bring the best out of her, right? 
And then he says, give honor to them. That's the last imperative. Giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. What a loaded verse. Giving honor to the wife. This means that your wife is to have this place in your heart that is reserved only for her and she knows it. You've got, there's only one place for this person, for this woman. She's, there's, there's a certain type of treatment that only she gets. And she knows it because she's that special to you. One of my mentors taught me this early on. He gave me this practical example. I'm not, I'm not trying to pretend like I'm really good at all this stuff, by the way. But I did have a mentor, praise the Lord, that told me this early on. And he gave me a really practical example of it. Um, every time I would talk to him, we'd have mentoring meetings. And I think they're really important. We're planting a church here, you know, and got ministry stuff to do. And he would be like, right in the middle of it, he'd just hang up on me. I'd be like, what happened? And he goes, oh, Sharon was calling. He could just could say goodbye. I mean, it's like I did. I thought it was, this is just a super practical thing. Doesn't matter what in the world is going on. I do not care if my wife texts me or calls me. Sorry, I got to put you on hold. You know, doesn't matter what I could be on the phone with the president. Doesn't matter. Hold on, buddy. I gotta. I gotta have something more important I can do right now. So, you know. And it says to, uh, you know, you honor her as the weaker vessel. Now, this is likely referring to physical strength, um, which is a general principle. Can't everybody pretty much agree on that, right? I mean, I know I go to the gym and there are some gals that could bench press me and beat me in arm wrestling all day long. But on average, God has created, you know, like, I mean, I was reading a statistic about a four-minute mile, and there isn't a woman that's ever even come close to that where there's a bunch of men that can do it. It's just, the whole point is, is that, the application of it is this. In a marriage, men, there are some burdens that your wife shouldn't be carrying that you should be carrying. That's essentially how it works. It's not saying there aren't some real tough wives out there. I mean, I'm, there are, you know. Some of them are much tougher than their husbands, you know, I can tell. But the whole idea, what Peter is getting at here is you say you should honor, you know, your wife, you know, in that sense. I always love to see a guy walking out of the grocery store carrying the groceries, you know, just stuff like that. Could the wife carry him? Yeah, you know. I heard this one guy talk one time. He says, you know, I'm sure that my wife can open a door just fine, probably better than most, but she will never do that a day again in her life as long as I am her husband, right? So... You know, you can ask the Holy Spirit how to wrangle this. If you've got a problem with the Bible calling you the weaker vessel, I mean, you can take that up with the Holy Spirit. Um, but men, what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to, you know, protect and care for a woman. Care for your wife. Protect her. Carry burdens. As being heirs together with the grace, uh, of the grace of life. And so back into this culture, again, Aristotelian, you know, the, the common thing of the day was women were spiritually inferior. What Peter is saying right here is, no, no, no. Your wife is heir of Christ and salvation and everything just like you are. You are equals in everything you have in salvation. This was a jaw dropper. This was so radical of teaching in that day. And then he says this that your prayers may not be hindered. And so we'll conclude with this warning here. Men, uh, if you don't treat your wife like this has been uh, described right here, um, there are going to be spiritual implications and consequences in your life. And that's what he's getting at here. You know, men, some of you might wonder why God doesn't really seem to like connect with you in prayer. He doesn't really answer your prayers. Maybe it's because you're not honoring your wife. Maybe it's because you're not 
you know, serving her like Christ served the church and loving her like that, that could be why, you know? And nobody does this stuff perfectly, but I mean, I'll tell you, man, if you're a husband here today and you're not on your face pretty regularly asking God for forgiveness of how you're approaching marriage, you know, I don't know, man. I mean, the call is to love your wife as Christ loved the church. Has anybody ever done that perfectly? I mean, I got a lot of forgiveness to ask for. I mean, it's totally sacrificing yourself and everything for, I don't know if, you know, not me, man. I got a lot of things to ask the Lord for forgiveness for, you know. And I don't want my prayers to be hindered, so God, I ask you to help me apply this. Let's make a conclusion here. Timeless instructions for harmony in marriage. Wives, submit to your husband. He's the leader. Respect him in word and deed. Respect him simply because of his God-given place. You can only do this as you put your trust in God. Do you believe God is in control? Then embrace your role as your husband's helper and work very hard in honoring him and building him up and adding to your life together and, and building your marriage in the role that God's called you to be in. Husbands, don't simply be a bill-paying roommate. Become a student of your wife if you're not and honor her, men. Make sure she knows she's the most important person to you. Not only because you tell her, but because you show her constantly. Not just one day a year, not just on her birthday, constantly. When we ask your wife, or, you know, are you sure that you're the most important? Oh my gosh, yes. My husband, he's the husband of the year, of the decade. That's the kind of husbands we want to be. As we study marriage, you know, I always think of the verses that Paul said where he talks about human marriage and he goes, this is a reflection of Christ and the church. He says, I tell you a mystery, that this is a reflection of Christ and the church, the bride of Christ and Christ being the bridegroom. And, and when he says, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church, there's so many parallels. Jesus came into this world. He made himself completely vulnerable and he laid down his very life for his bride. Now, sometimes men, his bride rejects him, doesn't love him the way that he des deserves to be loved. But yet he came and he made himself vulnerable even when it says he came to his own and his own received him not. Jesus continued to be loving and giving. God gives agape to those that don't even always return it. That's what you've called to be. When I look at this picture of human marriage in the church, it just makes me look at my wife and just in awe and wonder and say, you know, this is so much more than what's going on right here. There's so much more to this in God's eyes. As we live these things out, our knowledge of his love and care for us only deepens. When you give yourself fully to this in marriage, the result is your knowledge and understanding of Christ's love for you only deepens. And I'll leave you with that thought here as we depart today. Father.